Welcome back. It's season four of the Lindsay Morgan Snyder podcast. This season, we'll be talking to even more interesting people called by God to love and influence the most culture-shifting city in society. That's right, Hollywood. Why? Well, our old friend Plato plainly puts it, those who tell the stories rule the society. Or, as Lindsay likes to say, as goes Hollywood, so goes the culture. We invite you to come and listen in. We'll be talking to a group Lindsay likes to call artists of culture, people who have risked it all to have a kingdom influence in the storytelling business. We are act one, no editing kind of people. So if we say something silly, we laugh at ourselves and we move on. No performance necessary, not on this show. And now, welcome your host, Lindsay Morgenstern. Hi guys, welcome back. We're in season four of the Lindsay Morgan Snyder podcast. And I am always pumped about my guests, but I'm super, super pumped about who I have today with us, Mr. David Neronia. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this man. He is an actor, writer, and director. He's been in Hollywood for 30 years, and he's been on some of my favorite shows. I have to read you a little list, okay? Um, He's been on Jack Ryan. He's been on The Mentalist, which is one of my favorites. He's been on Bones, Ugly Betty. I mean, come on, y'all. That's so fun. CSI Miami, Boston Legal, um, Monk, which is my favorite show in the whole world, and Frasier. So, I mean, he's done a lot more than that, but those are just a few of Lindsay's favorites. So I want to introduce you right now to Mr. David Neronia. Hey, David. Hey, my friend. How are you? So good to hang out with you. So good. I am so excited about this. I know you have so many good stories to share with us, so I'm pumped. (laughs) Me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So David, I know that acting is the thing that people kind of get a little starry-eyed about, but that's not all you do. Like you're a writer, you're a director, you have a hundred credits when it comes to TV and film and Broadway. I don't really even know what a credit is, so I'm going to have you tell us a little bit more about that. But can you dive in a little bit into like that side of things and what all that means? Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been in the industry since I was uh, about 17 years old. And a credit is just, it's a thing that you've done. It's like jobs that you've done. I mean, most of us, most of us that actually work at a company or whatnot, Uh, might only have like three or four jobs in our lifetime, but for the working artist, we're constantly going out and we call it auditioning kind of our interviews. And so, yeah, just over the course of 30 years, I've had the real privilege of working in all three of those on stage, on the little screen, big screen a bit. And um, yeah, so I've done over a hundred different types of jobs in the industry. And um, it's been my privilege to kind of work with just a diverse, cool group of, of various artists along the way. That's so amazing. And I mean, as a child, like, was there any indication that you were an artist or like, when did you kind of discover like, you know, cause it's, I think it's really a privilege to end up in, in a city of storytellers like, like LA. And I don't, you know, there could be creative people out there that just never make it out to this side of the country. So when was it as a little kid that you kind of knew like, or your parents <laughs> maybe kind of knew? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a really great question because my folks are from Cuba and I'm first generation American. Yeah. So they came over right after Castro took over in Cuba. They they came over really, really young. Um, and actually, both of my parents have never been back. But I went to Cuba when I was 19 years old. So I come from 
just working class immigrant culture. They, they, I think were, first of all, they were just pleased that I graduated high school. I was a good, pretty much a good student for most of the time. I was kind of academic. Um, I was part of an international baccalaureate program, which actually is connected to how I got into the arts because I had some really, really remarkable teachers that changed the course of my life. All of them women, by the way. Wow. And so, but yeah, I think my grandfather, the patriarch of the family was rooting for me to be a doctor or a lawyer, like most immigrant. I mean, that's like a legitimate job. Ironically, and we joked about this in his older age, I just, I didn't become a lawyer or a doctor. I just played one on TV. And <laughs> by the days, he was actually really proud of me. But I mean, I think there were always little glimpses of it. I remember one day I decided after reading Stephen King, of all things, it was the book that my dad had sitting on the thing. He was super popular, obviously, in the 80s and still is. And I read, and I only got in like 30, 40 pages. I'm like, I'm going to do this. So I remember getting like lined notebook paper and we were poor. So we lived in this tiny apartment, which I shared with my sister's crib at the foot of my bed. And I had a desk inside the closet. And I remember just thinking, I'm going to write a book. I had no idea what I was doing. I think I only got 10 pages in. But I think if there was um, any kind of glimmer of me wanting to be a storyteller, I think maybe that's the first time I caught a glimpse of that. And honestly, I think if there was any kind of unifying theory at my core that goes beyond just these descriptors like actor, writer, you know, these kinds of things is that I see myself as a storyteller. And I wish I would have understood that about myself earlier because I think I went by other names like actor, mm -hmm. which though they brought me a lot of cool moments and opportunities, I don't think I ever felt comfortable as just an actor. I, I discovered late in my life that I think I was made for a, a bigger piece, a bigger picture of this thing called story. I love that. That's so powerful. That's so amazing. But you, you actually went to school at a conservatory, right? And you might need to tell us what a conservatory is. Sure. Again, outside yeah. of the arts, it's like, what is that? You know? <laughs> I love that word because around here, people end up saying things like conservation. Uh, they <laughs> They think it has something to do with like either nature or preserve or like birds or something. But uh, a conservatory is just like a fancy pants word for a school uh, that usually focuses on some aspect of the arts. I think it comes from the, the French uh, language. And but yeah, so like I went to a conservatory called Carnegie Mellon that ironically is probably better known for like inventing the Internet, because I think the Internet was birthed on that campus and but they also have the oldest degree giving uh college of the fine arts and i studied drama at carnegie uh they they now partner with the tony awards um and i was just a cuban kid who because of one of my english teachers got to audition for this thing called the conservatory and it changed the course of you know of my life and then you know now and we can talk about it later you know we decided to found our own Conservatory of the Arts called BCA, Bethel Conservatory of the Arts. Yes, absolutely. And that's how I know David is because I went to BSSM, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and I would yep. hear David and his wife, Lisa, and then this other couple, Fab, and I, I'm sorry, I don't know Fab's wife's name, but I would hear Claire. this. Yeah. What is it? Uh, Fab and Claire. 
Claire, yes. I would hear these four speak like at different points in our school. And I, I just was so drawn to them. I'm like, there's something about these people. Like they're just amazing. And they, yeah. And I'll let, I won't mess that up, but I'll definitely let David talk about what that is more. Um, but it's, it's so beautiful what you guys are doing. Like, right. I mean, cause you spent all these years in LA and then tell us a little bit about that. Like you were in LA and then you, you went up and you guys did BSSM as well, right? We did. Yeah, I did one year of the School of Ministry. My wife did two. Fab and Claire each did two. And then I think Claire did three. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, L.A. for me is like, I, I, you know, the Lord kind of took me to task a little bit because, I, you know, sometimes both with people and cities, you have to go through like a, a period of forgiveness and of sorting out your own junk that maybe you were projecting on places. I mean, listen, I won't lie to you. I think you've got to have a grace for places, whether you're a missionary, whether you're an artist, business person, whatever it is, like you have to have a heart or a grace, whatever language you want to use for that space. You have to be made for it, or at least made for a season there. And I, was, I spent 16 years in LA and that's where I did, you know, the bulk of my work. I still, ironically, over the last five, six years, I've not worked in LA, but I've continued to work in television. I've just flown to different places all around the world, Canada, Columbia, the South. Uh, so it's really interesting to see what's, that's a different topic, but what's happening now with the decentralization of the industry with streamers like Amazon, Hulu, Disney Plus, production now is happening. It's truly global. It was always global before, but it really felt like you had to be in LA to make it happen. Now, increasingly, like even my own manager no longer lives in LA. He's in, he's in Oregon. He's like, you know, up in Portland or something. So yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of change that's happening in the industry, but I spent 16 years in LA and it was, it was beautiful and tough. I mean, I was a dad, I was a working actor. I'm not a, I'm not a star. I'm not Tom Cruise, but you know, ironically, because the business is so tough, I'm somewhere up in those, that slim percentage of people that somehow pay their bills doing this thing called art, which is, it's a hustle, man. And, um, and I think spiritually, it was hard for me personally. Um, thankfully, I came to faith in LA and created, found, uh, you know, a beautiful community. But those years leading up to coming to the Lord were really, really rough. I made a lot of messes, made a lot of mistakes. By the grace of God, my wife and I are together and we now have four kids. But I was pretty sloppy in my early days. And I don't think you know, LA is an easy place. I found for me personally, I don't want to project it for everybody, but LA was an easy place for me to be messy mm. and in ways that were ultimately not going to be healthy and beneficial to me. And so some of that is me and I take full ownership over that. And I think in part it was coming to faith and then wanting a community of people that were truly on fire for Jesus is what led me to go, you know what? I don't know if LA is the problem, but I have things I need to sort out and Jesus, I need more of you. And that's what lit the fuse. I think what, eight years ago now to come up to Reading and take a year as a grown man, 39 at the time, I'm now 48 to say, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen with my so-called career, but if I don't get close to this man, God named Jesus, I don't think I'm going to make it in life. And, um, that then sent, I never could have imagined that I'd be having this conversation with you today about what the last eight years have looked like. Because when I came up to BSSM, I had, I had what I sold my house for in LA. 
And I had a Trader Joe's application in my back pocket while I was doing BSSM because I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do it again. Yep. Yep. I'm right there with you. I went up when I was 40 years old. <laughs> I had a very successful career in, not in Hollywood, but in, in corporate America and God kind of paused things and was like, now we're going to go do this. And yeah, it was <laughs> very humble. I, like, I think it's like a spiritual midlife crisis. Like I didn't, I didn't I didn't grow a ponytail and I didn't buy a Corvette or a Porsche, but I was like, Jesus, you're my midlife crisis. <laughs> I love that. It's probably a healthier midlife crisis. If I think so. I hope so. I hope so. Who should judge, but who should judge? No, that's so true. That's so funny. Um, so, okay, well then let's talk about these past eight years. So you came up to BSSM, God was doing some things and yeah, let it, let's go there. Oh man, it's, I'm it's probably the thing that I'm, I mean, outside of my wife and kids and, and just like the fact that he's just good and kind and he's been so patient with me. Um, I think for me, some of the most special moments that I've had, I mean, you know, listen, I, I felt like I received Holy spirit. I mean, I, I was, I got saved in a little church and I, and I'm sure that I had it, but I felt like baptized in BSSM, like for the first time with Mark Brooks, this amazing like teacher at BSM. I mean, I remember having eye contact with him at like a retreat and he looked at me and he literally like in a room full of 500 people, he looked at me in silence for what felt like an, a, an entire minute, which is like a really long time. And he's like, you just, you just had an encounter with Holy spirit. Like you just got back. And I, and I was like, I just kind of nodded my head. So I had some really seminal profound encounters, probably, probably a really special one that I felt as an artist, which definitely changed, you know, the degrees on my compass a bit was I was in worship and I remember pressing up, you know, in school of ministry, we, we worship often in first year in this huge, huge building called the civic center, which looks like it was built in 1980s, you know, post-communist Berlin and uh, concrete building. And, um, I remember that there was this hot zone of people that were super hungry. I started all the way at the back and then slowly one toe at a time, put, you know, put myself in the fire. Um, but I went, I pressed up to the edge of the stage and I saw people having encounters, uh, some of them physical, some of them vocal, all in kind of beautiful, extravagant ways. And, but I wasn't. And I remember kind of looking to my left and right and saying, Lord, I, I want that. And why don't, why don't I have it? Is there like, do I have a handbrake on? Like, what's my problem? You know, I remember looking on the stage where people were worshiping and painting and doing all these beautiful expressions of worship to the Lord. And I, I remember hearing him, it was, just, it was really, really clear. And he said to me, you see on the page and stage what others do not. That's how I speak to you. Hmm. And and that really wrecked me because I think I had judged my worship based on what I was seeing around me. Hmm. And, and that idea that God speaks to us each, like as uniquely as our fingerprint, as our retina, as our DNA, that he has a specific dialect that he speaks to us, I think is especially important to creatives because we don't often... I, you know, I joke that we're like platypuses, like nobody can kind of figure out what we are or how we work. And that's why the church has an interesting relationship with creativity. Um, and I interesting, by the way, is a euphemism in quotes. Um, I think 
this idea that God speaks to us uniquely and that that's beautiful and that one of the most important things we can do is to figure out how he does, I think will set creatives free. I love that. I've actually been going through that myself lately where I'm like, I just feel like I hear God this way and I feel like I'm crazy, you know? So that's really, really confirming. That's really powerful. Ah, that's amazing. So you did one year at BSSM and then was that when you guys, did you go straight into like this idea of BCA or not? There was this weird time in between. (laughs) Yeah, there was, that's a word for it. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful, weird stretch. And what happened for me personally is literally before I graduated first year, I met Danny Silk, one of our senior leaders up here. And he had written the books, Culture of Honor, loving your kids on purpose that literally changed the course of my life. I actually came up here because of culture of honor. I didn't know Bill. I didn't know I didn't know any of those voices. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. So I didn't know about all these Christian celebrities. And by the way, I use that loosely because I have the utmost respect for Bill, Chris, Eric, all those guys. They're, they're like men of God that have changed the course of my life, but I didn't know their names. I didn't know their resources. Danny's book, culture of honor was the thing that lit the fuse and, and, and got me asking the question, like, where is that? because I'm not experiencing that where I am at currently in my community. And I need that. I need that kind. I need that Jesus. I need that kind of worship experience. I need that kind of culture. And so that's what prompted me to come up. So I found myself in a room with Danny where he, he was just asking me about myself because he knew that I had worked in LA. He knew that I had produced some stuff and whatever. And it was that, that actually got me that conversation with Danny is what, got me an interview at Bethel Media. So I got hired as Bethel's first producer over at Bethel Media. The department or the the part of Bethel that exports the podcast, everything you see on Bethel TV. And so up to that point, Bethel had been reluctant to have anybody call the producer, come in and help them shape content. And so for for, I think, gosh, I think it was six years, I worked for a combination of both Bethel Media and Bethel Music. And with them both, but differently for Bethel Music, which we can talk about later, because that's where the writing and producing and directing started to really um, kind of take flight. But with my days with Bethel Media, what what I took to be my charge is to help Bethel tell its story and to help it export its story in all of its many expressions um, to the world. Wow. That's so amazing. I love that. I, um, I've always kind of wondered what producers did to be honest. Me too. Me too. <laughs> it's so, sometimes I'm like, why does a producer do yeah. But that's neat. So they, sh- they help shape stories or that's kind of, that was what you came in. It's a great question, by the way. And I think the reason why it's a little bit confusing and I'll give you a short answer to a very long topic. I think that the thing with producers is there's probably legitimately, and if you look at the credits, depending on if we're talking TV or film or theater, essentially there's probably about three to five different key types of producers. Some producers uh, bring financial resource. And so you'll hear terms like executive producer. That means they might've brought the cash, but executive producers can also mean head honcho. Um, Then you have producers that help bring people and the scripts together. Uh, You can have producers that help develop just the creative side of things or the talent side of things. You can have producers that actually 
help run stuff or deal specifically like a line producer deals around budget and finances. So part of the reason why it's hard to figure out what a producer does is I think we're using one word for probably five different types of jobs. But here's how I would summarize it because uh, of sweet Irish, and I won't curse on your show, so you can find <laughs> that I'm substituting for, but he basically just said producers get stuff done. <laughs> Period. Dot, dot. Period. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I know when I came to Hollywood, like people would talk about producers. And I mean, I've been here, what, seven years and I'm still like, somebody tell me what a producer is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's part unicorn. It's part unicorn. I think that's what it is. That makes sense. That makes sense. So you were there for a while and then BCA. I mean, I remember hearing the story of BCA. So, yeah. so tell the audience, what is BCA? I mean, you and I talk about it like everyone knows, but but tell us what it is. Yeah, in my last few years over there, Bethel Media Music merged. And so I was in a season of writing and producing, which was beautiful, but really challenging because we had a small team. But we were able to accomplish some two beautiful projects, which if we have time, we can talk about. One was a documentary with a worship leader in Iraq. And then I also had a kid's faith-based musical called Bright Ones that we did. So that was fun. Towards the end of that season with Bethel Music, we Fab, Fabiano Altamora, Claire, my wife, Lisa, we, we had been dreaming about creating a space where, look, good fathers and mothers who have children, biological or otherwise, what we want for our kids is not the avoidance of mistakes, but that we would launch our kids in such a way that hopefully they avoid the mistakes and the pitfalls that we made. Mm -hmm. And so Danny Silk has this really beautiful kind of metaphor for what ministry looks like. And ministry looks like I break the bread off of my life and then I give it to you. And I think what, what the four of us, the four founders of BCA, the Bethel Conservatory of the Arts wanted to do was to create what we call a safe place for artists to take risks where they can perform in the presence of God, not for identity, but from identity. And that's really the vision, the mission statement of BCA is to train and equip the next generation of creative revivalists in acting, screenwriting, film, and dance. And so towards the end of that, Fab and I had a beautiful conversation with Chris Valentin, one of the senior leaders here at Bethel, who really was our papa. He was the guy who said, you tell me when you want to do that and I'll back you. And Chris didn't just back us with words. He gave us financial resource. And we're now five years into uh, Bethel Conservatory of the Arts being a, the first fully accredited college uh, of Bethel. Hmm. Because now Bethel, of course, has the School of, of Worship. It has the School of Technology. It has the School of Ministry. Bethel pretty much has a university and that's where we're headed. But BCA, ironically, it was the worshipers that actually led the way towards us becoming an accredited college. And so, yeah, we're both super excited and proud of what God has done in the last four to five years. Wow. No, you just said it was the worshipers that led us. What did you mean by that? I mean, you know, just what, 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 what God does in scripture, where in battles, God calls the artists. I know sometimes in Christianity, we equate worshipers with the singers. And I, and I love that. And by the way, Bethel Music, highest respect. I've had so many encounters through their ministry, but I'm using worshipers 
in the bigger category. And like the category of, for instance, the biblical fact that the first person to be spirit filled was an artist and that's Bezalel in, in Exodus. So when we talk about artists in the church, I think sometimes inadvertently, inadvertently, I don't, I'm not critique. I love the church with a capital C. She's my favorite. But I think sometimes I think we've reduced creativity to simply the singers on stage on a Sunday. And I do believe, I believe wholeheartedly that the next great wave of revival is actually going to come through the creatives of the body of Christ with a big capital C. Yeah. I agree a million percent. This is so fun. Yes, 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 yes. And I've heard you guys talk about that story in Exodus. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because it's such a good, I mean, I, I've just heard you guys kind of talk talk about that. And I just love it so much. So I'd love for you to share that with our audience. Well, here's what I'll do. I'll be the teaser to that because the one who really carries that message well is my partner, Fab. He has a whole message about Bezalel and he's going to go, he's going to do it way more justice than I will. But so I'll butcher it, but I'll tell you this. <clears throat> if you go back and you look at Exodus and you look at when God was building his house, his house of worship, the tabernacle, this movable tent that carried his presence throughout the wilderness for all of those years where we were all lost. Um, God chose of all of the people to fill so as to build his dwelling place. He chose Bezalel. Mm -hmm. And so scripture tells us that the first spirit filled person, that was this beautiful prophetic picture, even before King David, who then also had Holy spirit come upon him and indwell him for the act of worship and building his kingdom, both literal and figurative. Um, Bezalel was the first spirit filled. And so I think sometimes we've forgotten, we've forgotten what God chose to do through artists and how highly he trusts artists. I like to say it like this, and this is more my message that I can do more justice to. If you go back even before Bezalel, here's what I like to say. In Genesis 1-1, mm -hmm. when God spoke, God actually created creativity itself at creation. And God created story at creation of all the ways that God could reveal himself and he could have chosen. He's, he's an omniscient, omnipresent, all powerful God. He can do whatever he wants. And of all the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, I never want to lose sight of the fact. And in fact, I'm seeking God constantly on this revelation that he chose story first. And whatever an author chooses to do first tells me something about the value that he has for that thing. So when I look at Genesis 1-1, I just remember the epiphany that I had when it smacked me in my face that he created creativity at creation and that he revealed himself through story first and that he is the perfect storyteller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful. That's so amazing. That's what I keep thinking too. Like as I read the New Testament, the gospels, I'm like, Jesus taught through story like all the time, you know? And and like you, I just believe that God wants to transform the world like through story. You know, I, I just have this vision of people sitting in their living rooms, getting healed, saved and delivered cathartically yeah. through story. Yeah. And it's just like so beautiful. It's so powerful. I love that so much. Um, so I want to backtrack a little bit back into your, your uh, Hollywood days. 
Um, yeah. Not that they're over, but back into, you know, when you were yeah. down here in LA, um, you, you had a couple fun stories. You said you had a funny story uh, and then you had a really powerful story. So if you'd share those with us, I think that could be fun. And I know you can't reveal everything, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my funny story is a messy story and it has nothing to do with God. It, it has to do with, I think what young artists are, are willing to do. And it's connected to a prophetic word that I actually have written uh, you know it's uh, had a, a friend of mine who actually had it with some calligraphy and I have it framed on my wall and it and it's and it's so I'll start with a funny story just real quick which is I was doing NYPD blue which goes back to like my 20s and this was this big you know groundbreaking TV cop show uh, by by Bochco and um, the executive producer on that thing and I remember that I had to smoke for the role and so I was young I was hungry I was very kind of uh, there's this acting technique called the method. And so, you know, I just thought, you know, it's the real man. And so I bought a, a pack of Marlboro Reds because my dad used to smoke when I was a kid and he smoked Marlboro Reds. So I'm going to smoke Marlboro Reds. And anyways, in film, you have to know when you're going to smoke and tap the ash and all this stuff for, for, for the edit. Uh, it's called continuity. So if I don't do things at the same time, when the editor goes to edit, it doesn't match. So anyways, you have to practice all this tedious stuff. And so I remember walking around my block, figuring out when I was going to smoke, when I was going to exhale, all this kind of stuff. All right. Well, I only did it with like a cigarette or two, but when you go on set, you're going to have to shoot this scene like 40 times. So I show up with my own pack of Marlboro Reds and on every take, I pretty much smoked a cigarette. Now, I don't remember how many, I'm not a smoker. So I don't know how many cigarettes there are in a pack, but suffice it to say that by the time we got to after lunch, I was beginning my second pack of cigarettes. Gross. Now to boot, I had eaten a tuna sandwich for lunch. Now I'm standing right off set and the lead of the show, and I can't remember her name right now. She, she had short blonde hair and I think she was a smoker. So she looks at me and she's like, Hey, sweetie, are you okay? Cause I was like 25 and she was older. So she was like, Hey, are you okay? She's like, you're looking a little ashy green. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to tell her that I'm feeling queasy. So we go in, I sit down. Now the camera's on me. It's my close-up. This is a big opportunity for me, NYPD Blue. And she turns to me and my character's name was Gabe. And she's like, Gabe, I know what you've been doing. You've been selling cocaine and the blah, blah, blah. And I'm supposed to turn and I'm supposed to like, you know, answer back. And I turn and I projectile vomit, tuna sandwich all over her shoes, I turned, I mean, literally it was like the exorcist. I vomited tuna sandwich in five different directions. They stopped production. They let me outside. They literally gave me a bucket. And uh, that was probably the most, one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me. They were very sweet and kind. The director was like, dude, I thought you were a smoker. I didn't realize you were inhaling. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Anyways, what's my point? My point in part is don't smoke two packs of cigarette and eat a tuna sandwich. Just, just. The other thing is that I think young artists are willing to do almost anything at the altar of our dreams. And on my wall, I have this prophetic word, this word that the Lord gave me when I met Diane Venora, this actress that's been in the industry. She was worked with Gino, De Niro, everybody, Juilliard trained. And she spent time in our environment at Bethel. She teaches acting in LA. She's, she's a total boss. And when I met her um, and we had this interaction, I heard the Lord say the following thing, and I'm looking at it on my wall. Artists are not prostitutes. They are prophets who prophesy through character, story, and emotion. Wow. And this idea that we're not prostitutes 
And I mean this, by the way, with the utmost, I'm not commenting on women or anything like that, because every single one of us at some point outside of a relationship with Jesus, we run the risk of prostituting or giving away for something, the very gift that God has given us. And so that's both funny, but connected to like how God has spoken to me about those early days in Hollywood. Flash forward to a recent experience that I had on set. I was traveling a lot for this for the sake of uh, the people on the show. And I'm going to kind of like, you know, keep things a little bit generic, but it was a big deal show. It's, it's on TV and I was traveling for it and I was away from my family and I was honestly really lonely. Um, I was sitting in a hotel most of the time and the Lord does this thing with me where in my early days I was super chatty and over the top and I would do stupid things on set to make people laugh. Nowadays, I'm kind of more boring, which is a struggle for actors because you don't like to be boring, but the Lord sometimes just tells me to shut up and I obey. And so I'm on the set, I'm feeling boring and I'm feeling like I'm not really connecting, but I felt like the Lord was just like, it's okay. And I'm like, huh, all right, cool. So whenever I remember, I try to ask the Lord, hey, you know, on the morning before I go on set, Lord, you know, just, just use me, just use me, you know, please. And um, I had been quiet. And all of a sudden there were two actors that were having this conversation on set. Now, uh, one of the actors comes up to the other and wants to show them something inappropriate. Um, it was something definitely probably now in this moment, especially that would never be allowed to happen again. But let's just suffice it to say that it was wildly inappropriate. Now, oddly enough, they turned to me. One of the individuals turns to me and says, hey, can you be witness to the fact that she said yes, that it's OK to look at this thing? I'm like. 30, you know, like three seconds, then a second checking with God. Like, how do I even respond to this? Because I mean, am I an accomplice? How do I respond? And the Lord says, just say yes, as in parentheses, you bear witness to the fact that she said yes. I'm like, oh, this is this whole tension thing of like, Jesus, you know, have I done something wrong today? And he says, just say yes. So I say yes. They show the thing. I don't look at the thing, whatever it is, but I, you know, I can, I can pretty much tell what what it is now they after this they hopscotch into a whole other conversation about evil and this whole thing and some of the words that are being used is like well evil comes from ignorance and uh there was a certain philosophy that was being and then all of a sudden i feel the lord say speak and i'm like really this i mean for three months and now this is it couldn't have been about something friendly, about something we were all binge watching on Netflix. No, it has to be the, okay, Jesus. All right, fine. So I say, hey, you know, I was actually in Iraq this summer. Well, if you ever want to stop a conversation on a Hollywood say, set, say, hey, I happen to have been in Iraq this summer. And that just kind of stops and they both turn. And I start to share about how I got to, I, I went with a worship leader, Sean Floyd, working for Bethel Music as a writer director to go to Iraq to a refugee camp of displaced people um, in Erbil in Northern Iraq, just about 45 minutes outside of Mosul. There were still active ISIS stuff, but it was pretty much safe. We were in a camp where there were still suspected ISIS members that were kind of hiding out, but we just went there to give away diapers, powdered milk, all this kind of cool stuff. Well, here's the interesting thing, and, and this is what's irrefutable about Jesus and the kingdom. When you say you're helping babies, nobody has a problem with that. Everybody welcomes you helping orphans and widows. Like nobody can refute that because just kindness is supernatural and it's irrefutable. 
So I share these stories, but I also share about some stories that I had heard one for the sake of time that really rocked me that I shared. And it was on the, the nature of evil. And I said, well, I interviewed a woman. What were you doing there, David? And blah, blah, blah. And I told him, I told him what I just told you. And then I was actually producing this documentary. And then I had the privilege of talking to a woman that was part of the Yazidi tribe. Now the Yazidis have a mixture of religion. They've probably been um, I don't know if that it's a verb, but they've, they've suffered the most genocide. I think 73, 75 different genocides because they basically are hated by everybody in the region. And I talked to a woman who relayed a story about how her people were on the run from ISIS and how I think the number is somewhere around 123 young girls, virgins, all committed collective suicide for fear of ISIS coming and systematically raping all of them because that's what they were doing at the time. And I said, listen, for me, it is my deep belief that evil is not just ignorance. It's a dark, dark spirit. Mm. And that light and dark are two different things and they're very real. I said, you know, I, have, I happen to be a man of faith and so forth. So there's silence. One of the actresses is literally in tears now. And we get called back to set. So now she's got to go act. We come back and I have one of the other actors turn to me unprompted. And he says to me, I want to ask your forgiveness for showing her the video that I showed her. He's like, I know that you're a man of God. And I said, oh, yeah, man, of course. I, yeah, I, I forgive you. And I thought, wow, God, like you are so wild. Wow. That was so unexpected that it made it worth being boring for two and a half months, feeling unseen in all of that, because it's never ultimately about me in a way. And it's language that we use here at BCA. We see ourselves and our students as what we call creative missionaries, yes. missionaries that are just sent to a different territory to speak about a man who needs to be known. That is so powerful. That is so amazing. I, I hear these stories a lot, to be honest, from, from people that are in the industry and, you know, it's not going to be on the news, you know, like it, it, you have to be very kind of covert and, you know, like you're not always going to get to hear the stories that go on and how Jesus is really in Hollywood and he's working and loving on people and revealing himself to people through Christians that are here. And yeah. I don't, I love that. That's like my favorite. That's so good, David. Oh my goodness. I am so thankful and honored that you would be on this on our today. This is so fun. I want to ask, so I was doing a little research on you before we jumped on um, and I saw that your son has got yeah. a podcast of his own that he is interviewing influencers and like younger, like teens, kind of similar to this. Tell yeah. us, I'd love to like hear more. Yeah proud of him. I mean, it was a really unexpected. I mean, he's, you know, an athlete hustler, you know, he loves Gary V. Um, we have, we have the type of household where we engage in all different types of, you know, language and thoughts and all this kind of stuff. Cause we believe that we're, you know, we want to engage in the world. And so anyways, my 15 year old son, Knight, N-I-G-H-T, uh, he, um, he just, he had this encounter with the, he had this dream. He's had these two really crazy specific moments with God. And this was one of them where he actually had a dream that he was supposed to start a podcast with Fabiano, my creative partner, my business partner and co-director here, his son, Josh, who is this young chef who was on a TV show and who's one. And he had, so he wakes up and the Lord had said to him, you're supposed to start a podcast with Josh. 
And so without knowing anything, completely self-taught, and now he's going to be teaching me how to launch my own podcast, he decides to do this thing. And it all was birthed from this beautiful kind of teenage frustration, probably in part with me, where he was like, teenagers get put in a box. And so I hung out with them one night and they just used me, you know, Papa, he calls me Papa because I'm Cuban. And he's, can we just like spitball about this? Can you help us? You know, a little bit. I have to be lightweight producer because otherwise he tells me, hey, man, back off. <laughs> but we spitballed and he had this really, both he and Josh had this beautiful idea, which is that sometimes teenagers just kind of get reduced or put in a box that we don't actually realize how creative and ambitious and hardworking teenagers actually are. And I was like, wow, I was super convicted by that. And so I've been championing him as has fab. And yeah, I mean, they've got this thing where literally they hop on social media and they've now been contacted by probably hundreds and hundreds of young entrepreneurs, creatives, athletes. I mean, from all fields, people who do surfboards have albums. And it's like, honestly, it's been like a revelation for me going, wow, I was wrong. Like there's some, like it, way more creative and hustling than me, man. So, I mean, I'm just super proud of him. It's called Juvie, J-U-V-Y. It's a little tongue in cheek. Basically the idea is they feel like they've been put in a box or a cage and they're, they're going to break out. So they call it Juvie. I love that. That is so cute. I'm definitely going to link it in the show notes here. Just awesome. like, yeah, you never know who's listening. And I love that. I saw that. I'm like, that's so cool. Way to go. <laughs> I love that. Well, this has been so fun, David. I would love if you would pray for us. And I'm also going to link BCA at the bottom, just in case anybody wants to know more, because it's so amazing what you guys are doing. And my sweet friend, Emily introduced you and I am so grateful for her. She's up there doing some amazing things with y'all. So so excited. So much for having us. Yeah. And listen, if you're a parent, a pastor, anybody who knows young creatives, we're, we're currently in the application and enrollment process for the fall. We've got degrees in acting, dance, filmmaking, screenwriting, and you know, financial aid, all that cool stuff is available. But what we want to do is we want to be good fathers and mothers to the next generation of, of creatives. And so if you know somebody who needs to be at BCA, just let them know. But yeah, it'd be my pleasure and privilege to pray for you guys. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Awesome. Father, we love you so much. Lord Jesus, you're the ultimate creative. Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, I just thank you. I believe that there are people listening to this podcast today that have dreams on the shelf. And Jesus, I just see you. There's like this menagerie. There's all these little beautiful collection of dreams up on a shelf. And some of us have put them up on this shelf, Father, because of past pain, maybe because somebody you know, with good intentions, just said, hey, maybe that's not possible. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the God of infinite possibilities, Lord. I thank you that you're the God of never too late. You're the God of 1159.59. So Holy Spirit, right now, if someone's listening who has a, a desire of the heart, Father, in this creative space, Jesus, I just, I thank you for your mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation, your breath of life, Lord Jesus. Just bless us, multiply our fish and loaves in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. It's been such a pleasure. I could talk to you for another hour, but I got to let you get back to work. <laughs> Guys, thank you. Thanks for everything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Well, now, wasn't that fun? 
See you next week, guys, as we explore another fascinating story of Jesus in Hollywood with your host, Lindsay Morgan Snyder. And for more from Lindsay, check out lindsaymorgan.co, where she coaches high-capacity, dynamic individuals called to entertainment and Hollywood in the areas of biblical self-love, self-acceptance, and connection with themselves and God. This is Nathan Madden, and as always, it's been a pleasure.